0: What a good hymn to precede the reading of the text from Matthew chapter 28. If you turn in your Bibles, I do hope you brought your Bibles today. It is a good thing to be a Berean real time. And we have a great privilege in the time in which we live to not only hear the word, but to read it and study it as we go. And I hope that's true for you in this hour because we will be going and flipping a lot of pages. Matthew chapter 28, a short chapter, but it sums it all up here. Let's now begin reading at verse 1. We'll continue through the end of the chapter. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, There you will see him, behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, And of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Gracious Father, as we now hear this conclusion of Matthew's Gospel, we ask that the Spirit of God would fall fresh upon us and breathe life into this Word that is the living Word that cuts asunder between soul and spirit And apply it to our lives with great power, resurrecting that which is dead, breathing life into old bodies and giving us a new vision for the glory of Christ, high and lifted up, whose train fills the temple, who is the king of glory, who has entered into the gates of Jerusalem and now is seated upon his throne, ruling and reigning over all of the affairs of heaven and on earth. We ask that you would fill us with this resurrection power and enable us to do that work you have called us to do, knowing that we have eternal life with Christ, our living Savior and Lord. It is in him we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you know that I have picked up a desire for riding motorcycles of a stress relief, and it wasn't. But a year ago or so, two daughters of mine decided to join me in this venture, and and so I was able to purchase a project bike last year to fix up. Now, a project bike means a junker, (laughs) and it had been wrecked, and it was in need of some repair, and the bike was intended to be for one of them uh, to ride with me. And uh, as they Uh, As as I got the bike, I brought it home and I stripped it down and decided to change it from really a sports bike into a style that's called a cafe racer or scrambler, uh, which required really a lot of removing of all the fairings and the plastic, cutting of metal and cutting the frame and re-welding parts back on. And pretty soon I was into a project larger than I had expected and the project became a project uh, on steroids. And as I began getting into this project, uh, I spent a lot of time on it, and I had parts strewn out all over the garage. And yes, I still do. Um, I had to figure out new blinkers and new lights, and I had to figure out new mirrors. And, and as the parts would come in, I would show them, oh, look at the new mirrors for your bike. As the. the, the, the bike had been wrecked. It had dents in the gas tank and that had to be repaired. And, and so I wanted to get the dents out and bring back and decided to paint the bike. And so you could see one thing led to another. But all of these parts were beginning to be beautified and strewn around the garage. Uh, all along the way there was progress. From time to time I would show the girls, look at the gas tank. You know, look at the fender. Um, And yet, I'm sure that didn't really um, give them the great fulfillment that they really have in mind, and that is to ride the bike. (laughs) The project has been going on for long enough. They want something they can ride, something that is useful. The parts as nice as they are uh, was not the point. They wanted something useful, That is often how we approach the Scriptures. We dissect it in all of its little parts, and we take uh, chapter by chapter, line by line, precept by precept, and oftentimes we lose sight of the point. Parsing out the verbs and considering little small nuggets that I can go and take for my day and little portions of a verse that I can memorize we even treat our bibles this way in our daily study we read maybe chapter a day and go about it and we forget really in the individual parts laid out all over the shop what the big picture is something useful something that is prof- profitable and appropriate and it's the big point it is the main point and and that is really what we come to in Matthew's gospel in the last chapter, and particularly the last four verses, which really is the, where he's going with the entire gospel from the very beginning. So as we come to the very end of Matthew's gospel this morning, and we bring this study to a conclusion, he brings the entire book to its climax in the last four verses, It's been his point that he's been driving at all along. He is writing from a perspective where he has seen these things. He has witnessed these things. He is privy to the power of these things. And now he writes about these things. Here we have a picture of what he's been developing all along. This is the direction that he has been going from the very beginning. Here in the last Four verses, we have the big picture. We've got something useful. All through our study of Matthew, we've been inspecting a lot of parts, and the parts are necessary and good for the whole. But now we come to the end, and I want us to now pull it all together, get all these parts together and put them into that useful point that Matthew is making here and see the point of the resurrection as it all comes together. It comes together in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His commissioning of His church. And we now are living in the light of that. This morning I want to gather up these parts, retrace where we have been, and, and, and then put it together uh, at the end in the light of the last chapter You might remember that Matthew's perspective as he's writing this gospel is different than Luke's and John's and Mark's. He he is not treating this gospel in a chronological dealing with the facts, but he is treating this with a theological perspective. He presents Jesus as king, and that's the point. Jesus is the son of God. God comes to the earth to reign as king. His kingdom is the everlasting kingdom that Daniel had prophesied about hundreds of years before. And this final chapter is highlighting Jesus' resurrection and is sending out his disciples with his authority and his power to disciple the nations. And this is where he makes his conclusion. That's the point. In fact, what Matthew is getting at and the conclusion of his gospel and where he's been driving at all together is this would be nothing short than world conquest under King Jesus. Now, let's gather up some of those parts. If you're here visiting with us today, you get the blessing of getting the Cliff Note version, and we're going to look at the entire book of Matthew in one setting. It's taken us years, and now here we are in the Cliff Notes. Chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, we're just going to peruse right through here and skim these chapters here. But I want you to glance at them as we go because I think by doing so, it will help you to see the structure where he is going and headed. In Genesis chapter 1, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 1, we actually pick up really where Malachi left off. In fact, I've actually mentioned to some people in today's time, we talk about being a New Testament Christian, and we need to be an all-of-the-Bible all Christian. And if you take Malachi, and you read where he left off, you take this page right here, it says the New Testament. If you were just to tear that out, you would have the continuity flowing like it should. We tend to put dichotomies where it shouldn't be. So we come right into chapter 1, and we have the genealogy, and the genealogy of Jesus, theologically treated now, starts with Abraham. It starts with Abraham because one of the promises made to Abraham is that through him and his seed, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. That was part of that covenant. And in Jesus, we see the one now whom all of the nations will be blessed. From Abraham, we go to David in this genealogy because Jesus is the son of David, the son of God through whom all of the nations will be reigned. This genealogy extends now through the exile where Israel did not have a king, and it comes right up to the place where they still didn't have a king, and they introduced Jesus, the son of Joseph, the king. Throughout Matthew's gospel, we see the nature of Jesus' kingdom unfold. It would be radically different from the worldly kingdoms. And this is part of Matthew's point, part of something we have to own and understand, because this would be radically different from even the way that the Jews imagined it would be. While it would eventually get to the complete and total dominion of the earth, the manner of doing so would be different from the way that the world goes about it. It would take time. It would take lots of time. It would include you and me in this process. So here we have the genealogy bringing us up to who this great king is. In chapter 2, now we see a continuation of that blessing to the ends of the world as the wise men come to behold his birth. Wise men from the east, likely from Babylon, the place where Daniel's prophecy about the great kingdom would be told. The one the wise men, when David or when Daniel was a part of the sages in the in the high sage court of Babylon, because of his dream interpretations and his prophecy, this was carried down from generation to generation, even among the Babylonian court, so that these wise men, these sages in the east, knew of the prophecy and came looking for Jesus at the appointed time. Much like the way that the queen of Sheba heard of the wealth and the prosperity and the wisdom of Solomon, who was a figure. And so the kings and the queens of all of the world would then come and bring their homage and their worship to the great king of Israel. And so here we have this being lived out and echoing of the past and its types, but now in the fulfillment of this in the anti type. In John or in Matthew chapter three, we see John the Baptist now prepares the way with the baptism of repentance. The baptism of repentance is we're preparing the heart to receive Jesus as king, to bow the knee to his lordship, to come under his authority, to receive him as lord of their life, to be able to be dead to yourself and to pick up your cross and follow Jesus no matter what he says. No matter where he takes you and no matter what he asks. A complete trust in your Lord requires a repentance first of your heart, a change of disposition, a change of attitude, a commitment of your life to follow Jesus. And here was John preparing the way. Jesus comes on the scene, now he's baptized, and this was the mark of his uh, public ministry as he is now equipped with the Spirit of God for the ministry, the public ministry that he came to Perform. And then in chapter 4, we see him being driven out. The very first test of his calling and ministry was to be driven out into the wilderness, to be tested by Satan and tempted by him for 40 days. Here among one of those temptations, Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he promises to give them to Jesus if Jesus would but fall down and worship him. Now, something, those kingdoms at that time, Satan did have control over. Jesus would refuse to take the bait, however. He knew that he would inherit all of the kingdoms, but when he got them, it would be so much more than what the enemy would offer or could give. It was like Abraham coming back from the spoil or the defeat of the kings and he has the spoil in all of the people of Sodom and the king of Sodom comes out to meet him and Abraham refused to take anything from the king of Sodom's hand. He refused to take the spoil, refused to take the gift from his archenemy. That's the point there. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, now we have this great Sermon on the Mount, one of the most memorable portions of this chapter, and also one of the most distorted portions of this book. But he starts out by speaking of these Beatitudes, blessed, happy is the man who mourns. And we have to understand that coming off of the heels of John the Baptism's preparation, we have to mourn for sin. That's our spirit. That's our disposition. That is the first place where we then go toward joy and the happiness in the Lord is this repentance. As we think about who is poor in spirit, this humility that couples with this mourning for sin, the Beatitudes here that is beginning on the Sermon of the Mount is the very character of the kingdom the character of those who are in the kingdom. It is not how you become in the kingdom. It is true for all those who are in the kingdom. Poor in spirit, those who mourn over sin, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are peacemakers, who love mercy and extended, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and are willingly to do so. See, there's a whole character here that Jesus had to frame so that when the kingdom begins to grow, people understand the nature of the kingdom is going to be characterized with that kind of character. After the Sermon on the Mount, then he comes into chapter 8 where we find a display of his great power and miracles as we're in chapter 8 there, we can overview and just see in that chapter, there was the healing of a leper, and then there was the healing of a centurion's servant, and the healing of, of Peter's mother-in-law. We also see then there was a uh, a miracle of commanding creation in the stealing, quieting of the wind and the waves when the disciples were in the boat, and we see a casting out of a demon. And you see three spheres here in which these miracles are taking place. He's showing power over humanity and all of the sickness and the the, the problems that we have due to sin. He's showing, secondly, the power over all of creation. His sovereignty, his kingdom, would be so far superior to any earthly sovereign, for he can command all of creation. See, when creation fell in Adam, Jesus came to restore creation in the new Adam himself. And so now all creation obeys his voice to the marvel of his disciples. He also cast out demons, showing his ultimate sovereignty over the spirit realm. So there is no and nothing that is not under his authority as he is displaying it. He comes to chapter 10 now where he then sends his disciples out. And he gives them power over demons. This is a precursor and a foreshadowing of the last chapter and the final verses that we will then come to as we conclude this. At the midpoint or almost the midpoint of this book, he does this to teach them. As they go in the power of the Spirit and casting out demons and taking that gospel and then re establishing the dominion mandate over all creation, they will be persecuted for it. Expect it. And so he teaches them the necessity of persecution and conflict that will come upon them, and then he ends this chapter by saying, I do not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. I came to divide family member against family member and person against person with the gospel. Some people will embrace the gospel, and by embracing the gospel and all that it stands for, it will cause a division with others who despise the gospel, who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. See, unity in the church is in the gospel. And that's what we need to embrace. But he warns them it's going to cost them something. It's going to cost them the ultimate commitment that they could ever make in their lives. Their lives. Count the cost. Count the cost. If you're not willing to commit to the Lord Jesus Christ and his lordship, you are not willing to be his disciple, he says. If you don't love him more than father, mother, sister, or brother, you're not willing to be his disciple. You're going to count the cost. It may cost you your life. If you're willing to die for his sake, then you will live. But if you try to save your life, you will forfeit it. For what does it profit if a man gains the entirety of the world but loses his own soul? Chapter 11, we find John, the precursor, is now in prison. And now he gets beheaded for his ministry. John, first of all, has doubts. He sends to Jesus in prison and he asks, Are are you the one to come or we are to look for another? Now, John had great confidence when he was in the presence of Jesus. But he now has some doubts and he has some questions. And Jesus sends his reassuring words back to John. Says, John, I am the one. And he shores him up in his faith. He reminds him of the nature of his kingdom. That he comes here. The blind receive their sight. The deaf hear. The, the lame are leaping for joy. The dead are being raised. And this conclu- the, the chapter concludes in chapter 11 with Jesus promising true rest. For all those who come to Jesus, he promises true rest, rest for your soul, rest for all of eternity, his rest that he himself enjoys, the rest that is now finished on the other side of death and resurrection. He concludes this chapter with rest, and I think it's important to see that as it segues right into chapter 12, and right on the heels of that rest, he now heals on the Sabbath We have a lot of highlighting now right here in chapter 12 uh, on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, is rest, right? That is part of the, the whole creation ordinance and part of what redemption brings back to restore to us. And Jesus teaches that he is Lord of the Sabbath. That's why he can give rest. It is his rest. So he chooses the Sabbath to heal a man and so demonstrating the nature of his kingdom relates to the Sabbath inseparably. Like so many people that are confused with the legalities of the Scripture and not seeing the story of it working out, the Sabbath is not a cessation of activity but resting in the beauty of the new creation that is all good. As soon as you began making it a legal regulation, you've lost its delight. See, as God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh he rests from all of his labors, he looks upon it and he says, Behold, all that I have made is very good. And he delights in what he has done. And he takes man on the first day of his creation and he enters into This rest and pleasure and satisfaction of God so that man communes with God in this eternal delight. It is God's delight that he invites us into. It's not a cessation of activity. It's worship at its heightened estate. So coupled with this Sabbath rest is the clarification that this king of the Sabbath is now king of time. This king of time is a suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about. And that's where we come in chapter 12 when he then quotes a lengthy portion of Isaiah. As we see this king of time, this king that comes into this world changing the order of all of creation, this great king is a suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied, and we see that he would be that which is in antithesis with Beelzebub. We see the great antithesis between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in this great cosmic battle where he now says a house divided against itself cannot stand. Being faulted for being of the house of Beelzebub by the very ones who were of that house, he stands opposed and shows the great power that he came So in chapter 13, he's going to illustrate these matters of the nature of the kingdom with now parables of the kingdom. What the kingdom is like, how it's going to grow, how it's going to to develop. And he's setting expectations and revealing the true nature of the kingdom. This is very important for the Jews. This is very important for Reformed theonomists and Reconstructionists. This is very important for understanding the nature of the kingdom and how this kingdom grows. I'm not opposed to the latter, but it must be done Jesus' way and not the Jewish way, the kingdom way and not the fleshy way, the servant's way and not the worldly lordship way. Way, see, because the two are absolutely, radically, diametrically opposed. As it is upside down. John fourteen now. Now that we have John, John the Baptist beheaded. uh, I think I misspoke earlier. Uh, John now confronts the stately authority. And he loses his head for it. but Why? Because his ministry was finished. And you know what? When your ministry is finished, uh, whether your head is lost or you have a car accident or you die of old age, God brings you to your eternal glorious home. Whether you are young or old, when God is finished with you, he no longer needs you. And he was finished with John the Baptist. We had to get the precursor out of the way so the king can shine in his light. The preparation has been done. Now the king is present. And so we have John's ministry completed. We come into chapter 15. Now there are more miracles. This is evidencing who he says he was. This is credentialing his message, and his power. Again, showing that the kingdom, while in this world, also transcends it. That's how you got to think about this. You're living in the world, but you transcend this world. The church is a nation in this world, but transcends all nations of this world. The church is, in the, is the kingdom of Christ and in the power of the resurrection, united together inseparably to its head jesus in the world and what the world sees of jesus he sees through his church see it's in the world but it's not of the world it transcends the world that's why we have work to do here chapter 16 we have the pharisees who are unwittingly on the serpent's side And they seek a sign from Jesus. Jesus, show us a sign that you are the Messiah, who you say you are. And they're asking for a sign in the midst of Jesus showing all these signs. Does that make sense? You know, he's showing them signs in the midst of them asking for a sign. That's the nature of true blindness Blind people cannot see what is right in front of them, and spiritual blindness cannot see Jesus when he is right in front of them. They cannot see the signs. Later he would tell them, I'm not going to show you any sign except the son of Jonah. And even when you sh- see it, you're not going to believe it. See? It's not the evidence they needed. They needed faith. Faith. And here Jesus warns his disciples now about the leavening of the Pharisees. The leavening is a subversive nature of leaven from within them. And Jesus warns them about their danger, their cancer within the body. And Jesus predicts now at the end of chapter 16 his death and resurrection. As he now predicts his death and resurrection, he then takes his three disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration and joins with him are Moses and Elijah. And he, with Peter, James, and John, are, are there as he is summoning all of the law and the prophets. That's what Moses and Elijah are doing. He's summoning up all of these parts. He's pulling them all together from the workshop and putting them together and showing them now they are testifying that Jesus is king. This is what we've been talking about. This is what we've been showing. This is what we have been prophesying. And now in his transfigured glory, the precursor and foreshadowing of what would come through his death and resurrection and ascension... Now these three disciples have a great illumination of this, of which they would not understand until he ascended back on high. It's like looking back on something and now see, ah, yes, now we see it. Chapter 18, Jesus addresses the matter of these eternal squabbles that are going to come with among his disciples and among his church, the disciples were beginning to complain. And Jesus says, you know, the answer to this is back to the character and the Beatitudes. who is was poor in spirit. That's why he takes a child, he illustrates what humility is about. He's got to address the problems within the church. He addresses them with the disciples and he addresses them with the broader church. And that's why he gives these instructions regarding how we address problems in the church in Matthew 18. Problems are going to arise and we got to deal with them. Because as he informed earlier, a house divided against itself will not stand. Chapter 19, now Jesus addresses the covenant unity as the unit. The family is the covenant unit, so he addresses the family. He addresses marriage and divorce, and he addresses children of the covenant as well. And it's all right there in this context of the king coming to the earth, covenantally fulfilling this covenant promise. This is the framework into which the kingdom would then surface here upon the earth, where the new creation would have its birth. In chapter 20, Jesus goes on to explain to them the greatness that I'm talking about is in serving. Not lording it over like the Gentiles do, but in serving. I came to serve, he says. And he commends his disciples that they have to minister in the same way. Contrary to world dominion, contrary to the conquest of fallen man, serving God through the suffering and giving men... Their eyesight is our M.O. Chapter 21 now, the whole narrative of the last number of years that Matthew has been going through slows from Matthew 21 to 27. All of these events are going to happen within a week's time, and yet the details are going to be expanded. In that chapter 21, he comes into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, proclaiming He is king, openly declaring it. And the people knew it, and they shout out, Hosanna! And the priest tried to get the children to stop, and he said, if you stop, even the stones are going to cry out. What we see here in this triumphal entry is the final showdown. This final showdown has been that which is prophesied since Genesis chapter 3. It's taken thousands of years to teach us, to build us, to shape us, to prepare us, and to help us to understand when it finally comes what it's going to be. And now here it is in the last week this final cosmic showdown, which will change the entire nature of this earth and its direction. And what happens? First thing he gets confronted with is they're questioning his authority. By what authority do you do these things? And he answers them, he answers them strongly, he gives them parables parables that they understood that they were the subjects in the parable that rejected God's sending of his Son. And so in chapter 23, he declares to them woes. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisee. Woe to you. And what he's doing here is he is declaring judgment upon them. The verdict is out. He is making his declaration of judgment, awaiting the sentencing which will come in chapter 24. Chapter 24 then predicts his coming in judgment, and we see that judgment did come about in AD 70 when he destroyed Jerusalem, when he destroyed the temple, when he destroyed the sacrifices, and Israel has no longer a nation. In chapter 25, he predicts his final coming in glory, which is still yet in our future. Chapter 26, he eats the the last Passover because he himself is the Passover lamb. But that last Passover with his disciples is also the first installment of the Lord's Supper that we now continue. And right here in this very time, as we're getting closer to the cross, we have this compression of time and space and matter so that within three days the death, burial, and resurrection would take place. Passover would be merged into the Lord's Supper and we would have time of Sabbath emerging into the Lord's Day. And we have all of this time and space and matter compressed as heaven and earth are now joined together in Jesus. That's what the temple was about. That's what Jacob's ladder was doing. That's what this heaven and earth... Reality is in the tabernacle, in the temple. It's about Jesus being united with his people out throughout the whole world in this sacred space where the Shekinah glory of God dwells behind the veil and the veil is the flesh of Christ. United in flesh with his church, the two become one. And here we are in this sacred meal before us where time is where we transcend time and space and all of our rational understanding. We enter into the mysterious heavenlies in Christ Jesus and we eat with Him at His table and we enjoy the pleasures of His grace. What was happening here in this time of this Passover and the Lord's Supper is death was giving way to life. Old creation was being done away with so that the new heavens and new earth would come. The old Sabbath now gives its way to the new. Time is being changed. Space is being changed. Matter is being changed. The resurrection of Jesus that goes right through walls and he can go from here to there and there's a difference in his glorified body. So now we come to chapter 27 where he faces trial and death and the declaration in great clarity that this is Jesus, he is the king of the Jews. There's more irony seen in the events of this chapter than anywhere else in the Bible. I dare say anywhere else in history. The death of a king to establish his kingdom and to give life to his kingdom subjects. Pagan soldiers mock him and put a crown of thorns and bow to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And then moments later, oh, this was the Son of God. Jesus dying unjustly to settle the justice of God for sinners. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. He who leaves glory that sinners may inherit it. The irony is thick and so the earth proclaims it with darkness upon the ground and the earthquake happens and Jesus dies and it is finished. Adam's old world is finished. The new Adam's new world will spring forth in life. And that's exactly what chapter 28 does. And it sums it all up. Now after the Sabbath on the first day of the week, when it began to dawn, a couple of ladies went to see the tomb. Notably, it's the first day of the week, the eighth day. There was a time change for the new heavens and the new earth world. The new world and the new time now corresponds to Jesus' resurrection. The word of God now has come forth in power, and he has spoken a new creation into existence. Matthew's gospel is the only one that then details in verse 2, an earthquake, and angel, the whole creation gives way to the king as this earthquake comes and it affects the stone and we have an angel here the presence of the tomb. And here is the angel with the presence of an empty tomb testifying to his disciples and these ladies who came exactly the announcement they needed to hear but in so doing... We see the invisible world and the visible world coming together, the heavenly creatures and the earthly creatures now having this conversation about the risen Jesus Christ. And they dealt with that. Because later in Colossians, Paul would explain for by him all things were created in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And by him, to reconcile all things by him, to himself, by, to by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is what Jesus was doing. He's bringing heaven and earth together, the spiritual realm and the humanity realm. And he's taking all of this in the resurrection of Jesus. And now you have an angel talking to the ladies about what has just happened. There's an open tomb. Death has been defeated. The grave is broken. The enemy of this world is defeated. As we see in verse 4, the emblem of that, where the guards shook for fear and they just fell as dead. It seems to be they weren't dead. They felt as dead because it seems as though they got up and they ran and told what had happened uh, just a few verses later, testifying of the truthfulness of exactly what they had saw. In verse 5, the angel then ministers to these ladies and gives them instruction and tells them of the good news. And Hebrews would later say, are not these angels ministering spirits sent forth to minister, to serve those who inherit salvation? They give this announcement then with instructions, this is not the end, this is just the beginning, just as Jesus told you. In verse 8 it says that they were now, they went out with fear and joy. Those are two twin emotions that are indicative of true believers, fear and joy. When we understand God for who He is, the greatness of His transcendent power, the sovereignty over everything that has life and breath, and all of this earth, there should be a healthy fear like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Like Peter, when he understood that he was in the presence of the Holy God, when he says, Depart from me, I'm an unclean man. There's this fear, but coupled and coming right on the heels of that fear is joy. So in verse 9, we see when Jesus now meets these two ladies, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus said, What's he say? What's he say? Do you see it? Verse 9, chapter 28, if you have your Bibles, what's he say? Rejoice! Rejoice And do not be afraid. I wanted to drive that point home because that is your Christian motto. Rejoice and do not be afraid. Jesus is risen. You might need to apply that today. Rejoice. And do not be afraid because Jesus is alive. Rejoice and do not be afraid. Rejoice and do not worry. Rejoice and do not let your heart be anxious. Rejoice, Jesus is reigning. In verses 11 through 15, now we see the enemy scrambling. The battle has been won, but there is still a lot of residue from this that's going to take place, and a lot of things that we are still engaged to be about. The enemy scrambles. The seed of the serpent has been given its mortal blow. What does the enemy do? Well, the enemy now goes and... These guards go and they tell what, all the things that have just happened, and they saw it, and they gave testimony to it. And what they do is, is they, they lie, and then they motivate them with money to lie. Does that sound familiar? They lie, and you motivate with money to maintain the lie. Do you see that replayed out in history anywhere? Anywhere close by? Anywhere among civil kingdoms of this world, that is always the way it is, people, because the the enemy is the father of lies and he will motivate with any means he has. And since people are so given to mammon, you can't serve God and mammon, it is a chief motivator for those to maintain the lie. And yet Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's why he says, don't serve the money. For the love of money is the root of all evil. It motivates to maintain lies. And then we come to his point. We come to the big point. We come to gathering up all the parts and assembling it together now. And what it means, and he says here, for now this new creation created in Christ Jesus, all things are new. Now all power and all authority has been given unto me, In heaven and on earth, go. Make disciples of all the nations. You will be successful. You will be successful. As all things are made new, this is even the fulfillment of the Noahic covenant where the whole world was reconstructed. That's really a foreshadow of what's going on here. In Noahic Covenant, we had men before that that lived really long years, and we have a difference now after the Noahic Covenant to make way for the new heavens and the new earth. It was a, a token in what Jesus was going to do, and as the ark then saves through the baptismal waters of judgment, now here is Jesus fleshing all of that out and now bringing in the new heavens and the new earth, showing that the earth has now been finally reconstituted, the nature of this This world is different. The time of this world is different. And the power of this world is now regained for humanity under the head of our new Adam, Jesus Christ. We are a new race of people. We are called to live a new way to be human, the Beatitudes. We are called to serve in order to take dominion. We are called to take the gospel in order to reign. And we are called to be priests and kings co-reigning with Jesus, seated in the heavenlies, where we have certain salvation and certain defeat over the enemies, where just like his disciples were given power of the unclean spirits, all the more the power that raised Jesus from the dead has been given to you. And the apostle says, I want you all to know it so you can live it because he has made us successful to do what he has called us to do. We don't question it. We don't doubt it. We need to get busy about it. He sends us out as an extension of himself. But remember all the lessons. It's going to cost something. Are you willing to be a disciple? You're going to go through tribulations. People are going to judge you. They're going to be unjust to you. They may kill you. It's all part of it. Are you willing? Are you willing? says, my kingdom. If you're willing, you're going to have life. You're going to have it abundantly. You're going to have rewards the likes of which you cannot even imagine. Are you willing to lay your life down today and deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus? Are you willing to let injustices happen? Do you know that I will reward you greatly and give you great joy if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake? Are you willing to do that? Oh, We love our personal peace and affluence. We love our idols. We love the things that this world has to offer. But are you willing to suffer for Jesus for just a time so that you can experience the abundance of glory, the likes of which you can't even imagine for all of eternity? If you lose your life for his sake, you will gain your life back and so much more. So go, he says. Go. Disciple the nations You know, Paul was was quite eager to give his testimony of Jesus' power before Caesar. He was not worried about his life down in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I will always be with you. Folks, let me tell you something. This is Jesus with his church today. I know some people say, well, he is with us, he can't you know, be with us physically, with us, and all this. and He's with us in the spirit. Jesus is with us today. He's just behind the veil. And success is guaranteed. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus is king. And the more you read the world's news and get indoctrinated the more it tends to cause doubt that Jesus is reigning here. But God is king here. We have work to do. It has nothing to do with catering to this world, but replacing the old world with the new. It is not being relevant to the world, but powerfully holy and distinct from it. And by doing so, we draw all men to Jesus. This whole idea of the church being relevant today is rubbish. Relevant to the new world, yes, but relevant to the old world, absolutely not. We are not to live the same. We have a new way of being human. Putting all the pieces together now, make this resurrection applicable to your life. The applications that we need to remind ourselves of here are number one, the character of the kingdom must be fully embraced. That's the Beatitudes. Number two, the manner of the kingdom must be exercised. We are to serve unto death versus the world's way of killing and manipulating and motivating and bribing and lying. Number three, the requirements of the kingdom will require us to count the cost. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? You will suffer. Are you willing to? Is that your joy? Is that your desire? As Paul would say, I desire to fellowship and to know his power and to fellowship with his sufferings. That was his joy. And are you willing to participate in his kingdom? It requires your activity to be a part of the going and making disciples of the nations. We have churches to plant, buildings to build, souls to disciple, Bible to teach, a new way of living as humans, and a new world to cultivate a new character in the new heaven of which has begun in Christ Jesus in this new world. If you're a Christian today, folks, you're a new creature Behold, all of the old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. If that's not true of you, then today is the day of salvation if you but call upon the Lord Jesus to save you. You can repent of your sins. You know that you will come under the wrath and the judgment of God. And yet, Jesus has paid that penalty for you. And you can receive him and trust him and lay your life down and follow him, whatever it costs. And you've got all of eternity to rejoice with him and his great power. King Jesus is king. And one day, every knee will bow to King Jesus and confess that he is Lord. May that be true of you and me today. Our gracious Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would reign in power right now over the hearts and minds of your people. We pray that the gospel would be heard in a spiritual way to conform us to its power, to raise us out of our slothfulness, to raise the dead to life, to energize us in the new way of being human in Christ Jesus to serve and to love in the manner he has spoken, to eschew evil and embrace righteousness, to separate ourselves from the filth of this world and to live holy and as lights in this world while we still are in it, to never be of it. We are thankful for your everlasting kingdom of which Daniel promised and prophesied and which Jesus is fulfilled. We thank you for this kingdom that is growing in our own hearts, in us, in this church, and in this world. And we pray that you would encourage us with this good news of the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has changed everything. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.